As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. Um, Bruce, we actually got a special request for a certain guest today um, who has become, I don't know, somehow become part of, like, audible lore recently. He certainly trumped Jacob Ullman as our, as our podcast, uh, podcast satellite person. James from Asheville, North Carolina says, Stu and Bruce, after a busy month, I've been catching up on all the podcasts from July in the span of a week or so. Across those episodes, it seems Rob Stone manages to come up more often than he does not. Clearly, you guys have an affinity for the guy. As one of many podcast listeners that are also big soccer fans, I think you should give Rob the chance to come on the podcast and make his case as to why college football and soccer should be considered equals in the sporting world. Is that true, Rob? Is that how you feel? Well, number one, I love Asheville, North Carolina. I hope to be there next week. I love the state of North Carolina. But, you know, to to have those two as equals, uh, that's an odd marriage because it's, it's really two different conversations. You know, college football is domestic. It is right here in North America, in the United States. Uh, soccer right now is, is just blowing up, but it's a global conversation. And, and it's certainly growing here in the U.S. But if you're putting those two entities toe-to-toe in the United States, I, I, I still give the nod to college football, although soccer is, uh, is gaining ground quickly and it's more of a year-round sport. Um, literally a year-round sport, not just the conversation of it, but being played year-round, where college football, yes, they talk about it year-round, but, you know, it's really got that the thrust of emotions uh, over the course of, you know, a four-and-a-half-month time, time window. Rob, we should, uh, for people who aren't big soccer fans, uh, you're basically the backbone of our network. And as I look at children's toys <laughs> on the floor, we're just hoping you don't screw up because we're all depending on you to keep us afloat. Uh, when you got to Fox or we got to FS1, I mean, is this how you envisioned the the path would go? Obviously, we we got as a network the w- Women's World Cup seemed like it did really really well, and everything it seems like it's grown around. But in terms of your workload, you're a father with four young kids. Um, it's pretty remarkable to me, just you know, knowing what it's like to have you have twins and two others to 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 juggle it all. But in terms of what you know, what's on your plate now? How do you manage it? 
uh, it is a lot going on. Um, you know, and you, you guys all have young kids too, so you, you know what it's like. I, I need the variety. And frankly, I probably need to get out of the house and away from my kids uh, here and there. And, and FS1 and Fox Sports provides me plenty of opportunities to do just that. Um, I, I love the balance. I love the juggle. You know, I'm, I'm driving uh, through northern Pennsylvania towards northern New York to do an NFL game uh, this week with the Buffalo Bills just to add another juggling uh, enterprise into my, my regimen. But I, I need that. It keeps me sharp, keeps me nimble. Um, but when I went to Fox Sports, you know, a lot of people forget I was there for a channel that's essentially no longer there. You know, I was hired by Fox Soccer. And that's all I was doing was soccer, and it was essentially international stuff. And then we lost the uh, contract rights to the EPL, and that's basically when Fox Soccer went away and FS1 came to light. And I'd been there for a while, and, and the bosses knew of my love and my passion and my past history with college football. And I kind of reinforced that with them on Saturdays when – when I was done with my EPL shift at a very early hour, you know, done at 9 a.m. Pacific, I would just slide into our avocado room where all the college football stuff was going on, and I would just set up camp there. And I'd be in the back watching football with everybody who was a part of the product back then while also writing my soccer stuff for the very early next morning. And, um, you know, I, I made it known uh, in non-so-subtle fashion that I, I can do this sport. I, I love this sport. I want to be involved with college football and uh, some of them took notice and uh, obviously gave me that opportunity. And uh, I don't have any intention of letting it go. I, I absolutely love college football. I have a great passion for it. Uh, certainly not to the level that you two guys have, but um, it is something I look forward to this time of year, every year. So it, it's been interesting for me the past two seasons to be there most Saturdays and, and to see you guys in action. And it's you uh, Coach Wanstead, Matt Liner. This year will be uh, Robert Smith as well. Um, I mean, why don't you take people through a Saturday where you're – I don't think they realize – you know, they might see you come on at halftime or pregame of a game. I'm not sure they realize the extent of the day and everything that's involved. Well, for us at Fox, at least right now, before the Big Ten uh, enters our world next season, uh, it's a real juggling act that is very uh, well laid out by our producers and um, because we're really supporting multiple networks, be it FS1, be it Fox, be it FS2, even some regionals uh, we're handling stuff for. So the moment we, we sit down, um, there's very few little windows of, of breathing. And you guys have seen it, um, particularly with me. And that, I'm not bragging. That's just what my, my job entails is that I need to, kind of be on set to babysit some things and make sure stuff doesn't happen where you guys get afforded the luxury a little bit more of being able to sit in the green room and watch the games and, and talk and have that camaraderie where I'm being kind of pulled in a few other little directions. But, yeah, you know, we have a Monday morning conference call talking about the week ahead. Uh, we'll do the same thing on Friday. But as you guys know, once that game – that first game starts, it's taking you for the ride. You know, it's much like a World Cup. You can have your manual. You can do all the preparation you want about the Bulgarias and the Venezuelas of the world. But the day is a long day, you know, flipping from one network to another, uh, jumping in on a halftime with very limited notice. And as you guys know, uh, particularly covering the Big 12, we seem to find our share of some rather random weather delays, uh, which straddle us to the desk and uh, deny us the opportunity maybe to, 
to prepare as much as we would like for some other things or to see some other highlights. So there is a lot of uh, on-the-fly producing uh, and talking, but we've been blessed to be with wonderful people behind the scenes and certainly in front of the camera. I absolutely adore, uh, and that's a strange word to use maybe, but I adore the people that I work with. And I, I feel very fortunate to be around guys like you and uh, Coach and, and Matty Ice and, and you know, the Bardias and the Kents and the Cappers and the guys behind the scenes. Very impressive uh, way to, to throw love to all these people, uh, even Bardia. you got to uh, keep them happy, right? Or at least salty in some of their cases. Uh, I have a question <laughs> for you. So how do you – you were a you were a college soccer player at a Colgate, a high academic school. God forbid Colgate play a game that's on some, some satellite that's going to end up on one of our 14 screens. So we have to sacrifice it for you to watch your, your – what, what is Colgate? The Red Raiders? Uh, no longer the red. We don't want to offend anybody. We are strictly the Raiders. I got it. Um, so, how did you go from that to the uh, to the viral video of you you trying to eat the pepper in in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and being a sideline guy? Like, what's your path to getting into to being really the voice of of not just ju- not just uh, FS1, but really you know the soccer platform you got now? Yeah, I always had a passion for this industry. This goes back to my junior high days. Uh, my dad was very, still was very intelligent and said, look, you know, when you have to work, it's for the rest you might as well enjoy it. And at that time, I, I enjoyed talking and, and reports and said, let's, let's marry the two. So at Colgate, you know, I, I worked at the campus radio station, WRCU, uh, doing classic rock uh, the, with one of my fraternity brothers. It was the uh, Smile and Bob Diamond Gym classic rock show. Uh, a lot of fun and a lot of beers consumed down in the basement. And then that led to doing some sports radio there, be it hockey uh, or basketball. Uh, got a job at a real radio station in Utica, New York, uh, when I was still a student there for two years doing Utica Devils hockey, just putting in carts for commercials and doing updates. And uh, it eventually led to a production assistant job, a part-time one at ESPN, not far from where I grew up. Spent a, a year and a half there, busting my tail, and realized I'd much rather work for myself than for somebody else, working that hard at least. So went to local news and did everything, news, weather, sports, cameraman, editing, um, and then just kind of moved up the food chain. But I got back into soccer at ESPN with a, with a weekly show at the time called, uh, it was a magazine show called Worldwide Soccer, and that was through a connection that I maintained when I was a little production assistant and the guy at the time was in charge of soccer he knew i had liked it for years and he called me one day and said i've got a job for you uh but i need a tape tomorrow that led to soccer that soccer show eventually started fizzling out and i started panicking a little bit wanted to earn my keep because i was still getting paid and i just made a tape of my soccer work and at that time college football really wasn't what it is now in the sports landscape and I just handed out tapes to all the bosses, the coordinating producers there. And uh, Mo Davenport saw it a week later, said, all right, you're going to do sideline college football. And I said, great. And I was off to San Diego State, and, and that's what started it, just kind of figuring out that job as I went because there was really no manual. And I think to an extent there probably still isn't at this time. And that, that was the start of my college football broadcasting career at ESPN, and um, it's, it's been augmented at Fox. I, just as a quick aside, I remember 
being at those, you know, Bristol pre pre college football season, you know, seminars for two days. And there was a breakout session the second day. And I was like, well, I didn't really have a TV spot to go to. So I went in the si- the sideline reporters room and I th- I'm trying to remember, I, like Jack Aroot, I want to say at the time was like the big dog yeah. there. And I think it was you. And I remember Todd Harris was in there. Um, and it was funny because I just seeing how things have changed and, and that role, I mean, just from my own perspective now of getting, you know, jumping into sideline reporting, how different is wearing the hat of being the studio host compared to that compared to, you know, doing some analysis or, or having the expertise like you do in soccer, probably that's different than a lot of people in the, maybe in that chair. Well, sideline reporting to me is maybe the most undervalued and underutilized position really in sports broadcasting. If you're good and you have the trust of your producer uh, and your fellow announcers, you should be utilized um, throughout the broadcast and not just a a token one or two hits uh, because I think they really add a ton of value. But your focus, your preparation is so uh, intense on just that one game and those two programs. And, you know, for me at least, I had to wear comfortable shoes because I was constantly – running laps around the football field and getting as close to the bench, the coach's quarters as I could while also scanning the other sideline. And I, I used to take pride in, in losing the people that were assigned to me. I, I can't tell you how many times uh, I would see them on the other side of the sideline looking left and right, like, shoot, I just lost a guy. Where, where'd he go? And I'm, I'm running around trying to get anything and everything I can. And so much of that role. And, and you know, Bruce, you're doing it right now is, is on respect and, and research ahead of time and connection. Um, you know, knowing the get-back coach, uh, knowing the officials, knowing the trainers, uh, having a comfort level with the head coaches where you can actually get information and, and run to them, you know, with 10 seconds left in the half to, to set up your interview. I, I love that position and, and the challenges it brought to me. But as a studio host, you're much more big picture. Um, it's much more looking into what does this game mean if you're doing a pregame show? How does that affect what's happened already in the day, what's about to happen on the day and maybe the coming weeks? Uh, it's understanding and respecting storylines that are built in and that have developed uh, and that might be out there down the road. So it, it's a much more broader outlook and perspective and, and kind of understanding. And, and I, I let my my guys, you know, Maddie and Coach and, and Robert this year, let them maybe handle more of the, the finer details of, of the why and, and, and why this matters and, and why this happened. Uh, I look at myself as more of just kind of setting the table, make sure they got all the proper forks and spoons and knives and the napkins on their lap and let them, let them go feast. Bruce brought up the, the, the viral video from a New Mexico State game, but I, I, I'm guessing most of our listeners don't know what that is. Um, so let's set that up. I mean, when you would do these, I guess that would have been what a whack game. Um, you did more than just report on the football games. You would try to do something a little bit, uh, a little for a little bit fun, a little lighten it up. Tell us about that whole, um, game and, and how that came to be. Yeah. At, at that time, uh, one of the mantras for all of the broadcasts for college football essentially were, 
Cohen-centric circles. I still remember. I remember that. Remember too. that yeah. buzz face. Yeah, and the DVDs that they would hand out, and they'd be there at seminars. And the concept essentially was make a circle, and that's your football game. But if you can draw little circles that touch your big circle, and you can draw in more viewers, let's do it. So if there's just a tiny element of this piece or this story or this element of the game that does touch on the two programs of the game but maybe has more to do with outside, go for it. You know, be aggressive, be daring, try it. And that's really my wheelhouse. Uh, I, I love doing it, those things at that time. And I think, frankly, it, it was to my detriment. But I, <laughs> I sought them out, I enjoyed them, and I had people that I worked with that, that trusted me and enjoyed finding some of those things for me. So New Mexico was the perfect uh, example. Uh, I think the night before I had done a soccer game, I honestly think it was in Toronto, Canada, and caught an early flight, flew across country, landed, I want to think it might have been you know, some random place in Texas, and then I had a drive to New Mexico, and I, I got there, and I was, I was a mess. I was disheveled. Um, I needed to brush my teeth. I needed a shower. I needed to get my clothes out. And as soon as I got to my room, there was a call that said, we're there in 10 minutes. We're going to this Chili Pepper Institute. So I had, I had no preparation. I was jet lagged. I was beat up. And I had to get this, this Chili Pepper Institute, whatever that was, done, done quickly and entertainingly before I met with the coaches who were nice enough to meet with me prior to they met with their team that day of the game. So I got into this institute, and I just kind of figured out the lay of the land in, in three minutes. This is this. This is the guy who's in charge of it. He's got a hot pepper. Let's go for it. And I love improv. Uh, I love Second City. I love Groundlings. Um, David Letterman growing up was an absolute idol. And, you know, watching those, those people do their job, you know, I learned quickly, you're all in. And, and pain makes for great comedy as well. So we set up the world's hottest chili pepper, the Buchelogi. He hands it to me, and, and you know, what am I going to do? Just look at it, hold it? No. <laughs> you know, you're there for a reason, so you take a bite. And I took a bite of this pepper, and 15 seconds in, there wasn't much. So I went for a second, uh, and that's what screwed me. <laughs> but again, again, you know, you're all in. You know, you're... You, you put all the chips on that table and you embrace the pain and the misery. Um, and the tears came out. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm spinning. They're giving me milk. It does nothing. I hate milk. I hate drinking milk. I never enjoyed it. But I, I took it and everything burns. It was sheer misery and everybody else was enjoying it at my expense. And that, that was entertainment. And we had great producers at that point that cut up you know, that four minutes of misery that was filmed, and I remember telling my camera guy, do not turn off. If, I'm, if, if this thing makes me throw up, you damn well better get it on tape because I want people to know that, you know, I was, I was fully invested and all in, and, and they made little, little nuggets, and they played it throughout a drive, and, and Sean McDonough, you know, just such a class act in the voice of Monday Night Football. He and Chris Spielman were my partners for years, and, I had them in tears. Um, they hadn't seen it before. I loved the element of surprise. I, I never wanted my guys to know what I was doing, what was coming after them. And so they just kept rolling these, these hits throughout the drive. 
And uh, it was great. It was so well done, um, so well produced and laid out. And, you know, the element of surprise is fantastic and entertaining. And, and also that's the beauty of, of college football. I, I remember one year uh, I was working a Thursday night game with Lee's uh, Davis, Mark May, uh, Lou Holtz, and uh, everybody was afraid to drive with Coach Holtz because he was a he was a bad driver. There's a reason he was a maniac, and I always got stuck with Lou. And he would have his pipe, and you know I was buckled in as tightly as I could. And we drove. He lived in Orlando at the time. I think he still does. And we, we were doing a game at the Citrus Bowl, and we had his car, and it was not a nice car, guys. It was like a hand-me-down, hand-me-down. It had South Carolina stickers. It had Notre Dame paraphernalia in it. It had golf shoes in the back. It had magazines. It had tobacco pouches for his pipe. And he pulled in literally right next to the wall of the Citrus Bowl. I mean, I, I could barely open my door without hitting the stadium, and he just threw his keys underneath his mat and away he went and we had our production meeting and, and I'm like, this is, you know, this is too good to pass up. And I told my producer and I said, Hey, can I do something? And I kind of softly told him what it was. And they said, let's go for it. So we went out back camera rolling. It was coaches, I think first year on the road. And I gave him some rookie hazing and I basically took his keys, fired up his car and bolted the stadium. And nobody knew it was coming. And they aired it in the middle of the game. And Coach was pissed. Because <laughs> he, he had to get somewhere after the game. And he kept yelling during the live and the commercials. He's like, can't go that route. Where, you know, with his, with his list and whatever. Where the hell is my car? Get those keys up to me. <laughs> and meanwhile, Reese and, and Mark are, are laughing up at him and, uh, you know, that was the joy of things that you can kind of do around a college football game and, and, uh, and, and the personalities that are involved with it. And, and we get the same right now with Coach Wazat, and you guys know it as well. He, he loves playing with you guys. This is off the record, Stewie. This is off the record, Bruce. You know, <laughs> some of those old huge stories. And, you know, I love listening to the, uh, the recruiting story that he had with, uh, with Coach Johnson when they were in Oklahoma State going against Barry Switzer, uh, you know, the antics that they had with the personalities of Dallas um, in the NFL. But the college football stores are, are what kept bringing us back and, and how much the game has changed. And I think really how much it, it kind of stayed the same in certain aspects as well. All right. So I'm going to combine two of your loves here in this quick question. Who is the better TV commentator villain? Bobby the Brain Heenan or Eric Winalda? <laughs> I mean, the brain is legendary and so sharp and can come up with so many things um, and very improv oriented. Uh, Eric Winalda is so good at speaking his mind uh, and maybe not thoroughly thinking it out because it's what he believes in, uh, but really stirring up uh, a, a a fan base or a section or an element. And yeah, you're right. Both of them are, are kind of villains, but they're wonderful entertaining villains. And, and in the end, you know, we are in the entertainment industry. Um, I love how we're able to blend, you know, the journalism uh, and the intelligence that you guys bring and the experience that Matt and coach brings. But in the end, you also, 
want people to be entertained. It, it, it can't be bored watching any presentation on television or a podcast. You know, if there's not energy and excitement and an attitude and a take um, on top of the intelligence and the journalism, you know, you're floundering. You're not providing anything. So um, I like Bobby the Brain better uh, because pro wrestling is kind of my, my quiet, guilty pleasure, uh, and I can sit back and snicker at it. Meanwhile, you know, Eric is right there 15 feet from me, and, and sometimes I need to maybe help him get out of a mess um, or make sure he avoids one because he, he's so good at, at stirring the pot and coming up with some angles that not a lot of people really think about but uh, ends up really provoking uh, a section of the soccer world. Well, folks, you can see him, what, 300-something days a year. No, um, we didn't even bring up Big East basketball. That, that takes up a few months of your year, right? Can't wait to the Big East tournament again. Um, and, and, you know, man, what Villanova did last season, you know, what that, the impact that has for the conference going forward. And I know you guys have been spending so much time talking about expansion with the Big 12. You know, I, I think there's expansion talks with the Big East that need to be discussed down the road as well. You know, and, and you talk about Cincinnati as maybe, you know, being a no-brainer for the Big 12. Well, Cincinnati would be a great basketball get for the Big East. So would, so would a UConn. Um, the, the changing landscapes of college sports in general uh, continue to fill up your days and, and get people a lot of things to talk about. But I love college sports. I always have. I was growing up. I was raised in, in college communities, be it um, Tampa, Chapel Hill, East Lansing. So college sports are, are near and dear to me and will, will never, ever leave me. I'm, I'm so fortunate to be a part of them year-round. Stu, can I ask Rob one other quick question? Sure. It's unfair, but I'm going to ask him anyway. Uh, so I think people know that you, you have a passion and you love what you do and you have fun at it and you work with a lot of interesting people. If you could only uh, pick one person – who is that person that you work with or have worked with who would most like to go drinking with? Well, thankfully I have gone drinking with just about all of them. Um, I don't think you could pick one because uh, I, I'm surrounded by really an all-star collection of people you want to be in a bar with. Uh, you know, Bill Raffery is probably the captain of that team, and you know, he, he's bucket list. You know, to be able to hang out with Raph at a pub is, is, is all-timer. And to be able to close one out with him is an absolute batch. And I, that may sound odd to some people, but those in the business uh, and those who understand our industry get it. And um, I, I will never forget a, a special evening in Manhattan with Coach Raph and his wife and his daughter and, and Lav and some of the other folks out there. So... Uh, you know, my soccer guys are legendary. You know, Alexi Law is uh, a dear friend of mine. Uh, when you get a couple glasses in, in Coach Law's that, uh, you thoroughly enjoy what, what he has. Matt Weiner and I were uh, clinking glasses uh, not too long ago. But Raph tops them all because he can just go. Uh, we'll, we'll go out to universities, and the head coaches know Raph is coming. And they, gotta, they have to plan a couple days around it, and they have to plan their assistant coaches' days around it, too, because they'll say, I can't, I can't be out late with Raph tonight. You guys got to pick up the slack and make sure he gets back home. Um, and I find that fascinating because 
they all want to be around rest. And for good reason. If you haven't had that um, that honor, it, it is an honor. And it would be almost like one of those things that they should raffle away because people would pay good money. You know, a night with Raph in a Manhattan bar would go uh, for a lot of money, and a charity would make uh, great headway throwing that one out to the general public. All right, so where can – well, I guess Buffalo Bills fans can see you this weekend, but on Fox, when can people see you next? Uh, great question. <laughs> You know, we got college football preview show coming up at the end of the month. Uh, soccer is firing up again for me again, end of August. Uh, and then, you know, Labor Day. Let's get all into college football. Can't wait to fire it up uh, to see McCaffrey and Stanford taking on, I think, an underrated Kansas State team. You know, week three, Oklahoma hosting Ohio State. I mean, seriously, uh, how, how good is that one? I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the chatter building up to that one. So, once September hit, uh, people are going to be um, – they're, they're going to have their fill with me for good, for better or for worse. And uh, hopefully that guy in Asheville, North Carolina, will be uh, in a good mood for it. There you go. And you can follow Rob on Twitter, Rob Stone on Fox. What a company guy. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, all right. Th- thanks so much for coming on. Keep listening, too. You know it. You know it. I'm always there. You guys get bored and stuck one week. Give me a call. I'm always here for you. All right. It's good to know. Thank you, Rob. All right. Thanks, guys, for having me. Talk to you soon. All right, Stu. It's always fun to talk to Rob. We hope to have him on more. Uh, he's just a lot of fun to work with, and he's very, very smooth as a as a lead guy to 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 run the show. Time to dip into the emails. You can send yes. your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. All right. So our first email, as I said, or second email, I guess, because the Rob Stone email is first. David Eisen, uh, who actually lives in Manhattan Beach, California. I noticed that Jim Mora did not make your top 20 coaches list or even the just missed. That's a reference to you, Stu's top 20 list, I should say. Uh, I thought he was supposed to be the next great thing. Yet I believe his Pac-12 record has been roughly the same as his sanctioned crosstown rivals. Has the bottle, has the bloom come off the rose? Hmm, it's a great question because Jim Mora has definitely had more success, I would say, in his time there than certainly uh, certainly New- Rick Neuheisel did. Certainly Carl Durrell did. Um, you know, Bob Salito took him to the Rose Bowl, but they had faded out towards the end. So really, you could say this is the best period that UCLA football has had since the late 90s and yet top 20 coaches hard for me to do that uh, without having yet won a conference championship uh, I would guess most of the coaches on that list have and if they didn't uh, it was because they were somewhere um, with with much less history of success than or, or possibility for success than UCLA and, and you know what the other thing is um, doesn't it just seem like at least once a year, if not more, they lose some game they have no business losing? Like, as, as, even though they've had the success, there's also a perfectly legit argument that maybe they've underachieved a little bit. Well, it's funny. When you talked, I talked to coaches last year in the, around the conference, they thought UCLA had the most talent of any team in the Pac-12. Now, they had a really, really bad run of injuries, especially on defense. Miles Jack was gone for most of the year. Uh, they lost Eddie Vanderdose, and by by the end of the year, when they played Nebraska, 
even though they had Kenny Clark, they were just so undermanned. And you saw it. I mean, they lost. They got beat at, at USC pretty handily. Uh, now, they did beat Utah, who was a top 20 team, but they lost to Washington State at home. So they lost three of their last four games. I would venture that if they won three of those four and finished out at, I guess it would have been uh, 10 and three, that Stu, you probably would have had Jim Mora somewhere in there. Yeah, because it would be um, on the heels of. There was definitely a ten and three season in there somewhere. I think the year they beat Virginia Tech in the he had two ten. He would have had he would have had three ten win seasons in a row, and his first year was a nine win season. Yeah, obviously that's great. You know, the one that sticks out to me the year before that they had a really good team, Brett Hundley's last year, and they had a chance to win the division outright, and they lost at home to a Stanford team that was seven and five. I want to say you know the year that they had a dip there, and and didn't just lose got blown out of the you know on their own field uh that's the kind of thing i'm talking about they're so close to it does feel like they're very close to turning the corner and i'm very high on them for this year i'm picking them to win the division but there's just that little bit of hesitation uh so i I can't say that he was you know even in really serious consideration for that um if you were to do your list because you had a you had a handful of adjustments to the cuts if you had a list of top 30 coaches would you have jim mora on it i would think so yeah Okay. I mean, because at that point, you know, how many? There's not that many. You know, now you're dipping close to like midway through the Power Five coaches, and of course, I definitely he's definitely the upper half of Power Five coaches, probably, you know, higher than that. Okay. Um, Ratha Hartha asks, "What do you think is a tougher schedule? Having to play a couple elite teams, basically no one else on the schedule that can beat you, or nine to ten good teams, i.e., not patsies." Who have a legitimate? Who you have a legitimate shot to lose to, uh, all but two weeks on your schedule, or something in between. In other words, who had a tougher schedule to navigate last season? Clemson, which played a couple elite teams. Stanford, which played nine good to decent teams, or Tennessee, which he's saying was somewhere in the middle. You know, it depends really how good you are. I, I think because you look at it, USC I think fits in that mode where. USC now they play the the biggest heavyweight in college football right now right off the bat and it's not at home it's it's in Texas they play Alabama they play eleven teams that that played in bowl games last year now I do think it's hands down the toughest schedule but the Pac-12 I don't think is quite as you know doesn't quite have as many strong teams I would say as the SEC does but they are but there aren't you know when when your quote unquote easiest opponent maybe Utah State, who's won like 35 games in the last four years. I mean, that's that's not easy. I mean, I, I mean, they can beat you. They've beaten ranked teams in the last couple of years. So I, I, I definitely would put that, you know, I think it, I think if you have two, two really tough games, like let's say Houston, this is a good example to me. Houston has Oklahoma, and then later in the year they have at home to Louisville. Those are, I think, and you would agree because I, I saw your preseason top twenty-five. Those are two of the top fifteen teams in the country. But after that, you know, it's the AAC, which is pretty pretty thin. Um, you know, I, I think the question, and maybe we can spin it forward, is: Do you feel like because of how the committee playoff committee views this, uh, do you look at it differently? 
about scheduling as opposed to having you know two very tough opponents and then a lot of others which you don't think will be top 25 teams i actually remember doing a story before the first year of the playoff about this very thing because you know we we kept hearing they're going to measure strength to schedule but they never were all that specific about how to this point actually they haven't been that specific still and i remember asking some analytics experts well you know what's the best way to do it and there is no great answer because and I had never thought about this way, but one one person um, put it to me this way. Well, you could have the same exact schedule and two different teams playing that same schedule, and it might be one might consider it extremely difficult and one might not because of how good that team is, right? So that's what I said. Yeah, I said yeah. that right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're uh, if you're Alabama and you're trying to get to the national championship game, and you're going to be more talented than almost everybody you play, actually everybody you play then you would certainly rather play, um, you know, I would say if you're Alabama, you'd rather play 12, not 12, but a lot of good to great teams that you feel like you've got the advantage over pretty clearly. If you're, um, so if, but then if you're, what's a good example? Um, We'll say Iowa. If you're Iowa, you'd rather play uh, two, I'm getting myself mixed up here. <laughs> you'd rather play two, just a, a schedule where there's only you know two teams that are clearly more talented than you, and maybe you're going to win one of them, and then you're going to have a great season. And otherwise, you know, what? Well, I, don't, I, I would take a little issue with the I think I'm confusing question. myself on this answer. Well, I would also, the, the way the question is framed, uh, you can say Stanford played nine very good to decent teams, and Clemson played a couple of elite teams. The reality was when you look at their schedule when they played them, Stanford Stanford only played three teams that were ranked when they played them last year in the regular season. One of them was USC, which obviously didn't you know wasn't the number six team in the country. They played UCLA, that's about the same, and they played Notre Dame, which was a top five team. Whereas you know Clemson also played Notre Dame. Clemson played Florida State. I would argue that Florida State was is a better team than either the UCLA or USC teams were last year. I mean, I don't look at. I guess what I'm saying is, and granted, Northwestern on the road proved to be a lot better. Although I don't, you know, they were a fringe top 25 team. But when I look at it, I don't. I think it's what what you see is okay if you're if you're not a Clemson fan you can go okay their schedule wasn't very impressive they only played two ranked teams and you're not giving much credit to those other 10 opponents whereas if you're looking at it from a maybe a Pac-12 person you're going oh well you know Washington State won nine games last year and Washington beat USC on the road and you know this I think you give more benefit of the doubt because you've seen those other teams that may not be top 25 teams, but you've seen them be, you know, beat some teams that may have surprised you. So, I, I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of beauties in the eye of the beholder when it comes to that to me. After thinking about it a little more, I think at the end of the day, in college football, you're not going to bring your A game every week. It's just not possible. I think you would much rather play a schedule where you only really have to truly get up, you know, if you can, if you if you can just have two or three games that you have to win, that you have to be on your absolute A game for, then that's going to be better. If you're playing a, a schedule where eight or nine of the teams are fairly evenly matched, but not necessarily elite, chances are you're going to drop a couple of those because it's just not realistic that you're going to come out with that edge every single week that would put you over the top against a team that's in the you know relatively similar um, uh, talent group to you. And you know, we talked about. 
I think in the last one, the last time we answered emails, somebody asked about Florida State and why they didn't join the SEC. And it was for that exact reason. Bobby Bowden took the approach of we're going to play, you know, seven ACC games that we know we're going to win, even if we don't bring our A game. And we just got to get up for the Miami game and the Florida game and maybe the Virginia game. Um, that t- proved to be a very uh, fruitful path for him, um, whereas some of these SEC teams have to play, you know, that's probably not a great example, but some teams have to play um, enough teams that somewhere along the way they're going to drop one. I guess the Jim Moore UCLA example would be one, right? Because that Stanford team he played and basically choked against was still a very talented team, even if they hadn't been having right. a great season to I, that point. I, Stu, I feel like we're talking ourselves in circles on this one, by the way. Yeah, it was, um, that was maybe the worst mailbag answer I've ever given on this podcast. Yeah, um, but there's still hope for us to, to lower the bar. Uh, by the way, so as you're talking, I'm kind of looking at this line. I'm like, what is this question? Because the first line I was reading, and I was like, is this, did Stu send me the wrong one? It's from Elliot in New Mexico. Marijuana in this country is in a gray area like never before, Stu. Uh, the percentages of Power 5 players smoking weed at this point is honestly irrelevant to me. The question that fascinates me is exactly why are they using marijuana to be addressed at another day maybe? But ultimately, with the legalization of it spreading across the nation, it's only logical to assume more college football players will be using it. Do you guys think the NCAA will, will follow suit with the NFL's policy going forward or take a different stance? I think there's pros and cons either way. I uh, love listening to you banter about anything college football. Keep up the excellent work. Uh, Elliot in New Mexico. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even be able to begin to answer percentage of players and, and who, are some, who are using marijuana and whether that's gone up or not. But, you know, I think that these things ultimately follow, you know. Did you smoke pot in college still? I cannot believe you're asking that on the podcast. You're not running for president, Stu. Nobody cares. Just Just share it with me. I did not. Did you? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually smoked more in high school than I did in college. But um, Well, maybe that's the percentage. 50% of the people on this podcast did. Maybe that's the percentage in college. Have you ever smoked pot? I have not. Okay. I'm not judging you? Okay. I'm, I'm, not, not, ju- I'm not judging you. I have not smoked For pot. For much the same oh. reason as this Elliot question. I don't really consider it to – even though it's illegal, I don't really consider it to be anything to um, – like taboo. And so to answer his question, um, you know, this stuff will follow the league policy or NCA policy tends to follow social trends, but perhaps slowly. So the trend in the country is that it's starting to shift into more acceptance and in a couple states legal. Um, and I would think that it will continue to head in that way in the years to come. So it would seem to me that the NCA would eventually changes policy accordingly but i don't know if that will be in two years and ten years you know just at some point that's going to probably happen don't you think yeah I, that's possible i mean who knows uh, you know it could be a fun game which of our friends do you think smokes pot <laughs> <laughs> i know this I, i'm sitting here realizing already that this part of the podcast is going to go viral and that uh and that there's nothing i can do about that um Ian what would it take? What would it? What would you be less inclined to do? Smoke a joint or eat that pepper that Rob's that kind of pepper that Rob Stone had. If you've seen the video, it looked absolutely miserable. Yeah, it did. Yeah. So yeah, pass me the joint. There you uh, go. Ian McFarland, Kirkland, Washington. Bruce Stu, love the pod as always. Your po- this was in the podcast about the AP all time rankings. Your points about the staying power of Nebraska and Penn State in the upper echelon of all time programs are valid. But I don't believe it is a coaching slash political slash conference issue. 
rather a recruiting-based issue. There are only two top programs in the country who rely on national recruiting for their base, Notre Dame and Oregon, or though you could perhaps argue Stanford is a third, and they are. Um, all three have unique national offerings, whether it's the Catholic Church, academics, or, in Oregon's case, Nike. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, you saw runs of dominance in national titles from Pitt, Penn State, Nebraska, Colorado, and Washington because they were recruiting California, Texas, and Florida before they were saturated with every other school in the country. With uniform information via the Internet, I think the days of sustained success from remote programs is over as much as that pains me as a Washington fan. There's no question in there. I guess he's asking if we agree or disagree. Uh, I would think there's some truth. I think it's it, there's a lot of factors going in there. First though. of all, real quick, I think I don't I wouldn't put Pitt and Penn State in that category. They the state of Pennsylvania was loaded with recruits at that time they were uh, at their peak. Yeah, and um, you know, look, some of the things were a little different in Nebraska's day of how things operated. Washington is, you know, still is going to get a lot of players. Uh, you know, everybody in the Pac-12 if they can, we'll try to, you know, have a big, strong presence in Southern California or in California in general, just because there's quite a few players here. Um, yeah, I, w- I mean, I would agree with with a lot of what he's saying. I mean, some of it is the geography of moving out and everything like that. You know, I, I recently I looked up, just kind of went back and looked at how many, you know, NFL draft picks or high draft picks come from what states. You know, and it's Florida is the big one and then Texas. And, you know, you do have some probably underrated areas. I would say the Carolinas are an underrated area. I would say Louisiana is an underrated area. But by and large, um, you know, it's that's the reason whenever people go, you know, you know, can Miami be great again? When you have the most players in your backyard, it's a matter of, you know, who, you know, who's doing the recruiting ultimately, because it, it all comes back to players. That's what that's what takes a program and make can make it great and there's no question that the reason the the number one reason i think nebraska will have trouble ever getting back to that point is because of where they're located and there's no natural recruiting base there and tom osborne recruited to a certain system where he could rely a little bit more heavily on the big linemen that grew up in the state and whatnot uh the walk-ons than a, a program might be able to do currently now one might counter as I think about this, if Oregon can become a national recruiter, why couldn't Washington? Why couldn't Colorado? Washington, is- cer- Washington certainly could. They have it's a cool city in Seattle. Um, they have really nice facilities. They have some history. You know, Chris Peterson. If he, they certainly could, I'm not saying Colorado because can. I think it's being too simplistic to think, to say that Oregon became yes. a national power yes. solely because, because of, of Nike. Nike. Yeah. you know, it was yeah. obviously a huge help, but they. They created a brand and a style of football that kids from other parts of the country wanted to go play. And I think that's the challenge if you're a Colorado or a Nebraska. Like, Nebraska can't necessarily at this point count on its history and history of national championships to lure a kid from California or New Jersey. They have to have something today. What attracts? What is going to attract those kids about Nebraska's program today? Well, this this comes back to something I heard, you know, DJ Durkin kind of mentioning at Big Ten Media Days the other day about he was once heard, you know, you either got to be different or you, you got to be better. And I think he thought it was maybe an urban something he got from Urban Meyer. But I think that kind of speaks to a little bit. Oregon was different. Yeah. And, yeah. and it worked. And very uh, ahead of the curve, you know, in terms of. 
the uniforms and the facilities, you know, and it, it worked. You're right. All right, Stu, we got we to gotta ro- roll. So let's get to these last couple quick. I want to get back to Daryl. have a common theme. Yeah. Daryl in Manville, Texas. Love the podcast. Question, though, what can, what can be done to make <laughs> Bruce drop more F-bombs? Can it be a requirement that Stu mentioned Johnny be good in every show? That, that uh, did seem to rile you up quite I'm a bit. I'm shocked that you like that movie. So bad. Uh, what is the so I'm gonna go a little different direction. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? Johnny B. Good as actually in would would be in my consideration. I hate when you ask me these things that I have to you put me on the spot. Worst movie I've ever seen. Um, I will I will throw out one that I saw. Hot Tub Time Machine. The first one you thought was that bad? It was pretty bad. Really? No, I, I, I it's such an absolute thing. Worst movie I've ever seen. Uh, the worst movie I've ever seen is, and I forgot what the title of it. Do you remember there was a, there was like a, oh God, I forgot what, what he was, genre he, he was even, I think Warren St. John created the genre that this guy was considered, it was Tucker Max. Ugh. And there you was watched a, that movie? Ugh. I did. It was actually the worst movie I, I've ever seen. I uh, didn't see it, but I would imagine that it probably was, yeah. It, yeah, it was it was so bad and so so lame and it was just it was just a bad movie. Um, but but Johnny B. Good was right up there. Yeah. I really don't see how that's possible. I mean, is it, it a, is awful. it an Oscar it was winner? No, but too bad, Stu. Okay. Oh, Next Caddyshack cl- too would definitely be in the in the equation. Yes. Uh, all right, this was from Ed. Do you foresee a podcast that gets Stu so worked up he drops the f bomb? Secondly, is Stu f bombing something? We should look forward to, or is it a topic that would be too reprehensible that we we hope this never happens? Hmm. What would it take? Um, yeah. Fuck you for asking me whether I have marijuana <laughs> on the middle of a podcast. There we go. I didn't see that coming. I hope that I hope that was worth the build up. Does your mom listen to this podcast? Uh no, I don't believe so. Um, my wife doesn't listen. Um, I do think some, uh, you know, our, we know some of our bosses listen, but are there people you've ever hear me offended? Yeah, are there people you would be really uncomfortable cussing in front of? Besides, like, say your mom. Uh, I, to be honest, I, I curse to myself a lot, like you know, <laughs> especially under my breath when when the baby won't go to sleep or something like that. I generally, I can't think of any cases where I, I, I can't think of any cases where I where I. Like you know, with, you know, earnestly did what I just kind of sarcastically did with you to somebody's face. I hear that in the old days of the ESPN, the magazine, there were some legendary editing wars where you probably got a little bit, uh, you know, into explicit territory. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I can't say it was anything. I wouldn't say it was legendary or anything like that. Um, I'm trying to even remember, but. Uh... I have a new one for worst movie, by the way, in terms of recently, a million ways to die in the West. No, I, you know, I, I remember seeing trailers for that, but I don't remember. It, yeah, I'm sure we will get some good suggestions of war, people that you know saw really you know bad movies. And, I mean, just to just to give them uh, um, some perspective or, or frame of reference, like there was a time when I would watch any. Oh, you know what? It's got to be an Adam Sandler movie because there was a time when I would go see any 
Adam Sandler, you know, Chris. You sure Barley, you never smoked pot? Because this is like this is like begging pot smoking, you know, stuff. Well, at the time I was in college was Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, Tommy Boy, which were all fantastic movies. So then I gave him the benefit. Here, I'm going to look it up right now. I can tell you definitively, actually. I just don't remember what it's called, but I'm looking it up now. The worst uh, movie I've ever seen. Um, while I'm doing that, tell people where they can find the Audible. You can find it on iTunes or Stu and I will tweet it out. <laughs> That's not it. I don't know. I've been saying the same thing every podcast for two years. I don't the even know. The one time I, I ask you to take over. I know. I can't, can't drive. Uh, you can't drive the bus. The worst movie in the history of movies was That's My Boy. <laughs> That's an Adam Sandler. You know what I'm talking oh. about? Yeah. Adam Sandler and Andy Samberg, where Andy Samberg is his son, it should never have been made. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't say I've seen all the Adam Sandler movies, so they would uh... – you know, by the way, when I was in, I think I was in high school, there was a, you ever go to the movie theater with a bunch of your friends and all the movies you want to go to are sold out. And I remember we once ended up in an earnest movie watching it. Oh. It was, it was so bad. Um, I would say that, and I didn't like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas either. I saw that in the movie theater. I thought that was pretty awful. I actually walked out of a movie that won, ended up winning um, Best Picture. What was that? Shakespeare in Love. Oh, I was you're, you're a deeper man than me to go see that movie. I don't know why I went in the first place. Bored me to tears. Um, if you have email questions, because this has been a particularly um, rambling a, podcast, rambling and fascinating set of emails, you can send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Not sure what our podcast schedule will be next week because both of us are traveling to various uh, preseason camps, but we will we will do our best. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.